0: Leaders in the Catholic Church talk a lot about handing on the faith to the children. We have Catholic schools and religious ed programs to help parents with this task, not to mention books and pamphlets and you name it. So, what happens when the faith is transmitted in the other direction? When it's the kid evangelizing the parents? This is Made for Love a Catholic podcast from the USCCB about how real people live out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. On this first episode, we're talking about parents, children, and the faith. We're going to start with the typical story of parents who teach their children who Jesus is and why the family follows him in the Catholic Church. I work at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, so for this story, I could interview almost anyone I work with. I picked Jade
1: Henriks. Hello. Hello. Okay.
0: Can I close this?
1: Sure. Jade Henricks, Executive Director of Government Relations for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops.
0: For one more month.
1: For, yeah. Uh, for one more happy month. And then I'm taking the family to Denver, Colorado. We're joining the Augustine Institute, which is a wonderful organization, kind of in the new evangelization mode.
0: Jade and his wife, Lillian, have three children.
1: They have three young children, nine, seven, and three.
0: Jade and Lillian take their children's formation in the Catholic faith seriously. So I tested Jade to see if he remembered what they promised at their baptisms.
1: Oh my goodness. I would raise them in the faith. I would make sure that they were San Francisco Giants fans. What else? I don't. I'm sorry. Boy, this is awful. <laughs> what should I be doing that I'm not doing?
0: They're doing a great job.
1: I, I wish I could say that everything runs smoothly every day, but it doesn't, but certainly we have the nighttime prayers every night. And the kids are bringing home a lot of things. I mean, they're, they're helping us help them.
0: The faith formation of children is never a one-way street, even when the parents are leading the way.
1: So our two older children they've learned how to say grace in Latin. Now, we're not a big Latin family, but they really enjoy that. So they now lead us in prayer, which is great, around the table. At nighttime, they've really started enjoying praying the rosary. But we also like the more informal prayer as well. We use the time at Mass to focus them on what's happening on the altar. And these are things that I learned later in life and I'm excited to be able to share them with them at a young age and they will continue to go deeper in the mystery.
0: Jade acknowledges that there's only so much a parent can do.
1: Now at some point in their life obviously they're going to be at a stage where they say yes or no to this but at this age it's my responsibility to keep them safe and when they cross the street and I need to keep them safe spiritually.
0: Now we're going to turn to a story that is not so common, one in which the child ended up baptizing his own parents.
2: Bishop James Conley, Bishop of the Diocese of Lincoln.
0: Before we get into Bishop Conley's story, though, I have to tell y'all that we were talking for a few minutes when I realized that my recorder was blinking. In other words, I had accidentally put it on pause. It was not going.
2: Oh, I'm so sorry. So we're going to start over?
0: Oh, goodness.
2: So We yeah. start over. So
0: this will just start. Sorry, we'll
2: just start again.
0: That's just to show you what a nice
2: guy Bishop Conley
0: is. Now back to the story.
2: I grew up in a family which was nominally Christian. My mother and father were believers, but uh, really didn't take us to church much. Uh, I have a younger sister. We were we were raised uh, in a family that you know believed in Christian values, but we we didn't go to church very often maybe on christmas and easter and then some other times we would go as well probably why we were presbyterian is because it was the closest church and the minister at the time was was a very good preacher so my mom liked him in fact if we didn't get to church we listened to it on the radio so we really didn't have any religious training other than from time to time we would go to church
0: bishop conley didn't spend much time thinking about god or religion as a kid
2: i I was probably mildly agnostic i i kind of questioned things but um I just kind of went along with it. I didn't deny God, but he really wasn't that important in my life. I was into all kinds of other things.
0: This continued right through high school.
2: I didn't really have any formal religious convictions going up through high school. So it really wasn't until I got to college that I began to ask the serious questions, you know, about what do I really believe?
0: In college, Bishop Conley met people who challenged him to start thinking more deeply about God, the world, truth, etc. Some of those people had been dead for thousands of years.
2: First year was all pagan literature, so you'd read Greeks and Romans, and the second year you would begin with Christian authors and end with the modern, so it was a sweep of Western civilization. And not only was were these books interesting to me, because I'd never read any of these books, like the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Greek tragedy plays, and then the Aeneid, the founding of Rome, and these great Roman authors, Cicero. So I knew about these names, but never had read any of these books.
0: But it wasn't only reading these ancient texts that was special about this integrated humanities program at the University of Kansas. It was also how they were
2: taught. The unique thing about the program is they chose to teach it through what they called the poetic mode. Because they realized that we were not our students, I don't think I'd ever read a book really from cover to cover until freshman year. So they realized that they had to do a lot of remedial work. And they realized that that our imaginations were bankrupt. And so they wanted to fill our hearts and our imaginations with beauty.
0: How do you do that? It's a question that parents and teachers really ought to be considering. One way is poetry.
2: We would have one day a week where we would memorize poetry, reams and reams of poems that we would just, uh, great English poems, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, the Romantics, but also, you know, even classical poems that uh, every school child should know.
0: I had a friend who was an English teacher once tell me why she assigned poetry memorization to her students. She said, we're giving them the words for their future experiences those experiences will be richer because of the words they already have at their fingertips. For example, if you're 22 and realize too late that you gave your heart away and it hurts, you could say,
2: When I was one in 20, by A. E. Houseman. When I was one in 20, I heard a wise man say, Give crowns and pounds and guineas, but not your heart away. Give pearls away and rubies, but keep your fancy free. But I was one and twenty, no use to talk to me. When I was one and twenty, I heard him say again the heart out of the bosom was never given in vain. Tis paid with sighs of plenty and sold for endless rue. And I am two and twenty, and oh, tis true, tis true.
0: That's a whole lot deeper than, wow, I was pretty dense when I was 21, which is all I could say. Anyway, back to Bishop Conley.
2: So they were filling our minds with music and poetry. And then we started every lecture. There were two, two lectures a week during each of the four semesters. And every lecture would begin with a song. And it would be either a, a, like an American folk song, Stephen Foster, My Old Kentucky Home was one, or a great English ballad like Believe Me of All Those Endearing Young Charms and Flow Gently Sweet Afton, these Robert Burns ballads.
0: And of course, they didn't forget Nietzsche.
2: One day a week, we would go out stargazing. We'd learn the constellations of the stars because we were reading these great classics which had the gods and goddesses and all the constellations are named after these Greek myths. And they were getting us just to look up to the stars and wonder, both really and figuratively, to get our minds lifted up to higher things so that we'd eventually ask those big questions, those perennial Permanent questions. Is there a God? What is goodness? What is justice? What is love? What is mercy? And all these books raise those questions. You know, all those books, you know, they all the authors deal with these great questions every, you know, from the beginning.
0: I don't know about y'all, but this sounds like pretty awesome college experience. But wait, it gets better. What do you do in the fall in Kansas?
2: We'd have a fair. The the students from the Integrated Humanities program would put on a country fair. And it was out in the country. It was beautiful, fall harvest and everything. And and there would be some sort of a little skit put on. And so the families, you know, could come. And and my parents enjoyed that.
0: And what better way to celebrate the spring than to get all dressed up and go to a classy old school waltz?
2: The program organized a beautiful formal waltz. Again, part of that idea of introducing us to these great things of Western culture. So we'd all have to learn how to waltz. Nobody knew. You know, I was, I was into the Grateful Dead back then. I was a big deadhead. And so I didn't know how to dance or anything like that. So we'd have waltzing lessons leading up to this big spring formal waltz. And we'd get a dance card, and we'd have six different ladies we would have to dance with, six different waltzes. And it was, again, teaching us the beauty of dance and manners, really. How to ask a lady out onto the dance floor without making a fool of yourself. And it was just this, it was transforming. You know, it it was a magical evening. And we had hired the university orchestra and the university ballroom at the union. And um, everybody, the women were in these beautiful gowns and the men were in tuxedos. and, And again, it was just sort of this wonderful transforming event which was part of our Western culture. The Strauss waltzes, They you know, played all the beautiful Strauss waltzes.
0: Sigh. I'll give you a moment to recover from educational envy. Now, when did young James Conley start looking at his own beliefs?
2: I'd say probably halfway through maybe my second year, my sophomore year, I began wondering, well, what do I believe? You know, because I'm reading all this stuff and all, this, all these questions are coming up. And, um, and that's when really I began to ask those questions for the first time. Do I believe in God? Do I really believe in God? And if I do, well, shouldn't I be going to church or something? Or shouldn't I be worshiping somewhere? That's when I really started to my journey, I think.
0: And what about specifically the Catholic Church?
2: I, I used to say that I read my way into the Catholic Church, which I did in a certain sense because those great works of literature were feeding my intellect in, in really deeply bringing me to these places where I had never been before. But when I look back at it now, years later, it was really the influence of friends. It was friendship. Other people who were on the same journey, who were in the process of conversion, we would get into discussions and conversations about this. But it was the example and witness of other Catholics who were living their faith that really had an impact.
0: Jim Conley had a roommate who was pretty serious about his Catholic faith.
2: He was from a very strong Catholic family, and I remember we lived together all four years in college. And, you know, we'd be out late like college students are wont to do uh, on a Saturday night and get in at, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning after a party or something. And, you know, I would just sleep in, and he'd get up out of bed, and he'd go to Mass. And I'd say, what are you doing? We just got in, you know. And he says, well, got to go to Mass, you know. Why? Because I'm Catholic, and it's, it's what we do. And I turn around and go back to sleep, but it just said, why is he going? I mean, we were at the same party, enjoying the same friends, doing the same things, and yet he had this religious conviction that I didn't have, and it just intrigued me. Why is this so important? He's not doing this because he has to, because the parents aren't around anymore, but yet he had this deep faith, and others did as well. So for me, what was really attractive about the Catholics who were in the program were, were that they were very normal, they were good friends, liked to have fun, enjoy college life, but yet they were very serious about the religion. They really believed in it.
0: The Catholics Bishop Conley meets in college don't try to convert him. They don't pressure him at all.
2: I had Protestant friends, you know, you know who would say, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? And I didn't like that. I, I didn't like people getting in my face about that. I said, you know, That turned me off. I thought they were weird. But these Catholic friends who never really pushed the religion on me by living their faith in a real way, authentic way, really intrigued me.
0: Bishop Conley's other roommate is a Catholic convert who has a Protestant girlfriend named Diane. They're always getting into lengthy theological discussions. And finally, Diane agrees to go to the local parish to learn more about Catholicism, but only if Jim went with her
2: she finally said i'll go under one condition i won't go with you because you'll be too much but i'll go with your roommate who's non-threatening who doesn't have a clue which was me and so he asked me will you will you do it and i said well yeah i'll go i'll go you know because i was already starting to think i better check out this catholic thing a little more
0: so diane and jim head off to the nearby
2: parish father moriarty god rest his soul would teach these classes every monday night and he'd use the baltimore catechism the basics of the faith but he would tell these great stories and he had this irish charm about him and we were all sitting around in the living room i'm sure we were probably sitting on beanbag chairs you know back then and there were probably lava lamps in the corner and all this you know 70s stuff and he would just teach the faith by telling stories i was enthralled by it all
0: dan isn't having any of it but jim is so i
2: say, probably after six weeks, I was absolutely convinced. And I remember he asked, well, so who is interested in becoming Catholic? And half of us raised our hands, you know, because I said, this is it. This is where where I should be. It made perfect sense. I mean, he he dealt with the question of the Pope and confession, all the hot buttons, Blessed Virgin Mary, um, the sacraments, the Eucharist, all these questions that Protestants usually have a hard time with. And each one of them made sense to me.
0: So, Jim comes back to the dorm to tell his roommates.
2: So, I come home one day and I tell my roommates that, you know, I, I'm going to become Catholic. And, you know, one of my roommates said, Great, I've been praying for you. But the other one, Diane's boyfriend, said, Well, what about Diane? And I said, Well, she didn't raise her hand. What? It's not supposed to happen like that. She's the one that's supposed to become Catholic. And I said, Well, she's, you know, she's still not convinced, I guess. But I am. Aren't you happy? And he said, yeah, 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 it's great, it's great, I'm, I'm glad for you.
0: Jim enters the Catholic Church in 1975, the fall semester of his junior year.
2: And I've never looked back.
0: Now, if you remember, this episode is supposed to be about parents of kids who come to know the faith. So how do Mr. and Mrs. Conley react to their son's conversion?
2: When I became Catholic, I did something that probably I wouldn't recommend others to do, and that is I didn't tell my parents. So I became Catholic and I came home for Christmas that year. And I think it was at Christmas dinner or something I just announced. Oh, by the way, I became Catholic last semester. Pass the potatoes, please. And my mother looked at me and she goes, Wow, that's wonderful. You know, she she didn't have any problem with it. She was just glad that I had got my hair cut and I was probably not listening to The Grateful Dead as much as I used to. So she she could see that my life was heading in a good direction. But my father, I'll never forget this, he looked at me and he said, I knew it, I could see this happening, I knew that this was going to happen. He says, I hope you realize, son, that you've given up your freedom to think on your own, that now the Catholic Church is going to make all your decisions for you, the Pope's going to make all your choices for you, but you're 20 years old, you're old enough to make up your mind." He says, I just want you to know that you've just given up your freedom to think.
0: Remember that part, because it's going to be important later. Bishop Conley explains where that reaction probably came from in his dad.
2: Because he was from that generation of this self-made person, you know, individualism, kind of rugged individualism, and he didn't want to submit to anything because, you know, he'd made it on his own, fought a war, became successful after the war, raised a family, and uh, he saw the Catholic Church as this sort of controlled religious church where you just had to kind of pay, pray, and obey. Couldn't really think on your own.
0: Jim is still a young man. He's, what, 21? So you can't really expect these conversations to go smoothly.
2: And we got into arguments like, you know, most converts I was trying to convert everybody, my parents, my sister, and you're all, you know, filled with enthusiasm and energy and you end up making a fool of yourself and you get in these long arguments and they're very Uncomfortable and and things like that. So I probably made all kinds of mistakes that first couple years and didn't do much to win anybody over. Just was uh, was a pain.
0: But his parents support him anyway.
2: Their bottom line was, whatever makes you happy. If you are happy and this is something that you have chosen, then we support you. So my parents, I have to say, even though my dad had objections, they were always this makes you happy? Okay, fine. As long as it's good, you know.
0: After college, Jim travels through Europe for a year, as you do, and lives and works at a monastery in France.
2: I really thought about maybe God's calling me to be a monk. And I remember writing these letters home. My parents freaked out, you know, they're never going to see their son again. And they knew that a couple other students had entered a cloistered Benedictine French monastery. That's when I first started discerning, maybe God's calling me to something more.
0: Jim comes home and works on his friend's farm.
2: And I loved it, fell in love with it. And we farmed organically, and I loved that. And we even had horses. We used horses for part of it, Belgian draft horses. And it was just a great life. And and we were all converts to the Catholic faith. And so we would pray together and uh, read together. And I thought this is what God wanted me to do, get married, have a big family, live the good life out in, 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 the, in the country in Kansas.
0: It would have been a good life, but something unique happens in 1979.
2: And then Pope John Paul II came to America, the new pope, in 1979. And he, you know, he traveled his first visit. He came to Boston and New York and Washington and Chicago and Des Moines, Iowa. He wanted to go to the heartland. And so that was his one of his last stops.
0: Jim and his friends pile in a van to go see the pope.
2: And I was dating a girl at the time, and we were talking about marriage. And so we all went up to see this new Polish pope. October 4th, 1979, I remember it, it was the Feast of St. Francis, and it was during harvest time, and it was a beautiful outdoor mass, hay bales behind the altar, just very rural and bucolic.
0: St. John Paul II, at this point, is really young for a pope. He's only 59 in 1979. He's Polish, he speaks a ton of languages, and he loves young people. He's very charismatic.
2: And I remember at the end of that mass, he made this appeal, as he always did, young men have you thought about the priesthood the church needs you you know come come join the priesthood follow me you know and
0: Jim is up front
2: it was like a rock concert you know I had a lot of experience at Grateful Dead concerts so I got my way up to the front so when he came down at the end he blessed every, and he was like only 10 feet away and I remember seeing him and his looking in his eyes you know after he had said that and this the priesthood just I'd never really thought about the priesthood. I thought about becoming a monk, but when I checked that off the list, then it was get married. I never thought about the diocesan priesthood.
0: Jim has a lot of time to think about this on the tractor. He finally goes to see a priest to talk about it, and he chooses the pastor at his girlfriend's church in Wichita. Monsignor Charles Walsh listens carefully and says that Jim may have a vocation to the priesthood and should consider going to the seminary to discern it.
2: The Pope came in October. I was in the seminary by January. Off to the seminary for the Diocese of Wichita. It was green lights from there. This was the answer. I was called to the priesthood.
0: He entered the seminary at the tender age of 24, which he says was late at the time, and then he was ordained. How did mom and dad feel?
2: They were supportive like they always had been. My mom was glad that I didn't become a monk. Then, so then when I announced that I was going to go to the seminary, she said, well, that's better than becoming a monk. We'll see you. My dad was, you know, still thinking, well, the Catholic Church is doing all your thinking for you, so you I can see this coming. You're going to go become a priest, and not surprising. But again, the bottom line was that they saw I was happy and at peace, and they said, if you're happy and at peace, then we support you. So they did.
0: Jim's parents visit him at the seminary, come to all the events, and meet his friends.
2: You know, I think my parents were really won over by my friends, and especially my seminary friends who became priests with me, and then after I was ordained, they would come down and visit me in my first parish. The pastor was Father Donald O'Hare, a wonderful, again, Irish priest, foreign-born Irish. My dad fell in love with him. They just hit it off from day one. And My mom, when they would come down and visit me in the parish, they would come and, of course, When the parents of the young priests come, they just roll out the red carpet, and the altar society ladies were just fawning over my mother, and, oh, we love your son, he's a wonderful priest, and and she just had never experienced that. She couldn't believe how Catholics loved their priests, and she thought that was wonderful.
0: And when Father Conley is sent to Rome, his parents visit him
2: there. I was there for two years studying, and my parents came over and visited me in Rome, and, of course, I used that opportunity to explain the whole history of the Catholic Church and my dad, I could tell something was happening with my dad. I could say he was kind of thinking, was processing all of this. Now he's got a son who's a priest. He met the Pope who does all my thinking. How could you not be impressed with the whole history of the Catholic Church? My dad was a big history buff. And so I could see something happening.
0: Father Conley slips his mom the name and number of a priest in their area, just in case, you know.
2: My mom wrote me a letter, and I remember it was Easter of 1991. She goes, your father and I have been going to classes.
0: Sure enough, a little while later.
2: I get this letter right before I came home to finish my studies. Your father and I have decided to become Catholic, and we want you to receive us into the church. And lo and behold, we discovered that they had never been baptized. Well, at least we don't think so. And so I decided I would conditionally baptize them because they didn't have any baptismal certificate. They can't, couldn't remember if they were baptized. So on August 2nd of 1991, my parents came to, down to St. Patrick's, and my friends were there. The bishop came, and I baptized confirmed, and gave First Holy Communion to my parents.
0: But do you remember Mr. Conley's reaction to the church earlier?
2: We're all standing at the baptismal font. And my father, my mother, I baptized my mother, and then my father was next. And just as I was getting ready to pour the water, I said, Dad, I have some question for you. He said, what's that? You know, if I do this, you're going to give up your freedom to think on your own. The Catholic Church is going to make all your decisions for you. The Pope's going to make all your decisions. And he's looking at me, and he goes, go ahead. And then I baptized him, of course.
0: Mr. and Mrs. Conley become devout Catholics. Mr. Conley would write to his son, why aren't the bishops doing this? Why isn't this theologian fired, Etc.
2: Dad, you can't just fire a priest, or you can't fire somebody who's, you know, Dissenting, you can excommunicate why didn't he excommunicate him? So he became this really turbo Catholic till the day he died. And my mother's still alive and she she's still very devout Catholic.
0: Now, if you're anything like me, you kind of want to know what happened to Bishop Conley's girlfriend. How did that conversation with the girlfriend go?
2: Well, she was great. She supported it. She was a great Catholic girl from a big Catholic family. She didn't want to get in the way of God and a vocation. And so she was very good. And ironically, I ended up, when I was finally assigned to my first parish, it was her parish. And she had then subsequently gotten married and had her first child, and I baptized her first child. So that was kind of God's way of saying, you know, kind of tying up that story to a nice happy ending.
0: So that's the story of how a child's conversion brought about the parents' own faith.
2: I look back on my life, and when I tell the story, like I just did, I can see this beautiful tapestry of God weaving this wonderful story. And we all have those lives, and we can all do that. You know, everybody has a beautiful story to tell.
0: Would you care to name that roommate of yours?
2: That roommate is, his name is Paul Coakley. He's the Archbishop of Oklahoma City. And he is uh, still my closest friend. We first met when we were in the seventh grade. We were on the same baseball team. My dad was the coach and we were friends all through high school, roommates all through college and he's been my friend of friends. Now we're both bishops and again, a beautiful story of God's providence.
0: Do you think either of you has a picture of that?
2: Oh yes, we do.
0: because we would love to put it on the when we do the show notes for this.
2: Yes, we do we have <laughs> we have a, we great. have a picture of I can dig it out. we've got a picture of that. With our long hair yes, and everything. that'd be awesome. Yeah, we've got that.
0: I also decided to take the opportunity to ask for recommendations of other bishops that I should interview.
2: I know there are two other convert bishops. Bishop Bavard, who is the Bishop of St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, and Bishop Paul Swain, who is Bishop of Sioux Falls, South Dakota.
0: So listeners, I'll be getting in touch with those bishops to see if we can get a couple more convert stories. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor.
2: Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks, everyone.